Politics Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. So the silly season is upon us. It feels like silly season has occurred already. On today's show, I will be discussing the silly season and a look at the 2024 U.S. presidential election a year out. It seems to be never too early for the chattering class to discuss the horse race. Many have commented that when it comes to the coverage of the U.S. 2024 presidential election a year away, we are still in the silly season in which a few pundits argue about polls and other wonky stuff that most people are just not tuned into. In fact, most people don't give a shit. It is silly because they argue about sometimes nonsensical things. Who's up? Who's down? One point, two points, three points up. The term silly season originated in the United Kingdom in 1961 to refer to the period in the summer months known for frivolous news stories in the mass media. Silly season refers to the time when journalists face a bit of a conundrum. Washington is on summer break or European governments are on holiday, but the columns of space in newspapers typically devote to politics must be filled. Hence, stories about beating the heat and how celebrities are managing to do so, etc. In the political context, political pundits and cable news chattering class need to talk about something. So they argue about silly stuff like trying to figure out who will win the spring 2024 primaries in September of 2023. A recent silly season debate broke out last week among the chattering class largely on X, formerly known as Twitter, and cable news. NBC News journalist Steve Kornacki referred to a Washington Post poll that showed Biden and Trump tied. Kornacki is one of the journalists I truly admire, much like MSNBC's Andrew Mitchell. He's someone who would report and say the same things regardless of which network he was working on. I put Andrew Mitchell in that category. You know, both just dispassionately report the news. Balls and strikes. What we all want, right? On election night, I always watch Kornacki, the ubiquitous number cruncher who calls these balls and strikes on election night, intends to be the most accurate. The poll in question that Kornacki reported on was the Wall Street Journal poll that showed Biden and Trump tied at about 46%. Viewers and notably the Mueller She Wrote podcast, which I had not heard of prior, apparently it's a left-leaning podcast, attacked Kornacki on X and elsewhere because Tony Fabrizio, a former pollster for Trump, was one of the pollsters. They were essentially arguing that a Republican pollster had cooked up a poll showing Trump doing better than he really is doing. What they failed to mention is that Fabrizio, who is a respected pollster, did the poll in conjunction with GBAO Strategies, a Democratic pollster. They combined their biases, as it were, and insights to come up with a poll for the Washington Post, and the poll had a high level of reliability. Kornacki defended his mentioning of the poll, but stayed above the fray and referred from the Twitter or X war. Most polls show Biden and Trump somewhat tied within the margin of error, so arguing about this poll is emblematic of the silly season. Partisan polling does not necessarily preclude
include polling accuracy. Most polls are showing a close race. In a highly polarized electorate, close polls are to be expected. These polls seem surprising to many of us, given that Trump is a highly disgraced, shall we say, indicted person who seems rather nefarious and extreme. I would argue that much of this is just a blue team versus red team and a highly polarized country. Most, not all, but most political scientists, pundits, and pollsters seem to view a Biden-Trump rematch as a fait accompli. The media is focused on Trump's challengers and a competitive race. They want viewers to watch debates and tune in, interest, ratings, money, etc. Many of these experts have concluded that the challenger with the most money, who was previously seen as Trump's most formidable challenger, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, is waning and seemingly out of the game. DeSantis has run a horrible campaign thus far, in my humble opinion. He seemed to overestimate the saliency of culture wars, banning books, and making it illegal for parents to take their kids to certain medical care. He, he thought that these were winning issues. I think he overplayed this. It turns out that not allowing teachers to say gay and banning books is not popular, even in a Republican primary. He is also at a disadvantage when it comes to voting heuristics. Voters tend to prefer optimistic candidates, candidates with a sense of humor, and those who look like they can laugh and enjoy campaigning. Think Bill Clinton. DeSantis' combination of off-putting personality in which he appears mean and angry and his shallow platform focusing largely on culture wars was just not a winning strategy. So that leaves several other candidates polling in single digits. Unless they all exit the race and rally around one candidate, Trump will likely be the nominee. There are many reasons that candidates do not exit the race for president, and that is especially true for 2024, in which there is a likelihood that something could happen to Trump regarding his indictments or something else. Many of them are not even running to be president. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson are running as Trump detractors. They do not appear to be running to win, so there is no incentive for them to get out. Former Ambassador Hayes Haley is seemingly running for vice president as she seems to be running against Vice President Harris. She mentions Harris in every stump speech and often does not even mention President Biden. This is a bit ironic to me given that in my humble opinion, Haley was the only candidate who presented as presidential in the first Republican debate. And I think she won, by the way. Others, like Ramaswamy, have no incentive to exit as he is raising money, raising his profile, and increasing his chances of being selected as a running mate or cabinet member by Trump, should Trump be elected. So he seems to be also enjoying the attention. Ramaswamy is increasing his chances of making a lot of money as a far-right cable news celebrity. I can envision him having a show on Fox. Christie has a consulting firm and raising his name recognition and profile will increase his political capital and earning potential. He could easily land a spot on CNN as a panelist or have his own show. The Ramaswamy Report on Fox or OAN and the Chris Christie Show on CNN. You heard it here first. In short, candidates can still win by losing. They are, after all, raising their profile by using other people's money. It's a great gig if you can get it. After all, who doesn't like free advertising? <laughs> 
The other interesting dynamic to me is that most, if not all, of the Republican candidates seem to be monolithic in their positions on issues. Even cheery Senator Tim Scott is very far to the right and has echoed the MAGA positions, a lot of red meat and, frankly, darkness. Ditto for all the rest. They are all staunchly opposed to a woman's right to choose, and most want the government to ban abortions. This, I should note, is not a traditionally conservative position, wanting Big Brother or the government making medical decisions. Something else that is interesting about Trump is his ambiguity. Political scientist Dr. Julia Azari, who I interviewed on this show twice, mentioned this, and she has talked about this, that Trump seems to be the only successful candidate for president able to maintain such remarkable ambiguity. I have no idea what his economic policy positions are. I'm not sure he does either. On some days, he seems very trickle-down and Friedmanistic. Arthur Friedman, a supply-sider in the model of Ronald Reagan, is who I'm referring to. He even gave the now discredited economist Arthur Laffer a medal. Laffer coined the Laffer curve term in 1974, and it was used by President Reagan in the 80s to justify tax cuts for the very wealthy. Laffer argued that cutting tax rates can result in increased total tax revenue, and the reason most economists reject this today is that the curve requires tax cuts for the rich, and it was just too simplistic and does not jive with what actually happens in the economy. Sorry for that rabbit hole. And I'm not an economist, so a lot of this I don't really understand, but that seems pretty straightforward. Trump swung from this Friedmanism to being Keynesian at times, named after John Maynard Keynes. This approach is sort of the opposite of Friedman, Laffer, and Reagan. To boost the economy, Keynes argued the government sometimes has to increase spending and give the economy a boost. Trump embraced this during COVID, and at other times, there is no ambiguity with President Biden. Bidenomics is Keynesian. In almost every other area, Trump has also been elusive, inconsistent, and even erratic. One exception has been his steadfast commitment to illegalizing abortion and satisfying the hard right evangelical Christians. And, you know, he nominated Supreme Court justices. They agreed through the Federalist Society to overturn Roe v. Wade, and they did. Lately, Trump has even been a bit more vague on this issue, although I think the media overplays this. While his fellow Republican contenders often try to compete for being the most anti-choice, Trump seems to realize that salience of abortion as a political issue is helping Democrats on the ballot, even in Kansas. His policies on education, guns, health care, infrastructure, and certainly foreign policy have been all over the place. Even far-right pundit Liz Mayer, who worked as an operative for Rick Perry, Sarah Palin, and Carly Farina and their election bids, does not see a path for Trump's opponents. She has highlighted the fact that even if a challenger won Iowa, it would not mean much. Rick Santorum won Iowa, Romney came in second, and after that, Santorum fizzled out, and Romney became the Republican nominee. In 2016, Ted Cruz won the Iowa caucuses and then tanked after that. Trump got only about 24% of the vote in that Iowa primary, but because Cruz got over 27%, Marco Rubio pulled about 23%, and other garnered some votes, they all remained in the race. Trump was able to sail to victory without a majority. Mayor and others are arguing that history will repeat itself, especially since these other candidates don't seem to be wanting to get out of the race. 
Interestingly, Mayor is hyping the possibility that due to their ages, it is possible that Trump and Biden may not make it to a showdown. Trump's numerous indictments could play into that at 77, and given his apparent apparent poor health, BMI and all that. Mayor has argued that Trump could have some sort of health emergency, such as a heart attack. He does seem to avoid exercising even while golfing. He uses a golf cart instead of walking. Some have noted his apparent cognitive decline. It may just be wishful thinking on the part of Mayor, known for her snarkiness since she considers herself a never-Trumper, despite being very far to the right. I personally find it a bit distasteful to talk about someone having potential health issues and wishing them well, but this is mayor style. Fox seems to relish doing this on an hourly basis in the case of President Biden. The media focuses on Biden's age and fitness and rarely on Trump. This seems a bit unfair or at least ill-focused. Biden is physically fit, he regularly bikes and works out, and is seemingly in great shape. He also seems indefatigable with his extremely daunting schedule. I'm not sure I could keep up with such a schedule. I know I couldn't wake up early in the morning and do all the things he does. Even a commentator on Fox mentioned that Biden worked through the night in Vietnam when he elevated the U.S. to its highest diplomatic level ever with Vietnam through strategic talks. In addition to globetrotting and rallying foreign leaders to defeat Putin, Biden seems to be on the ground after every hurricane or other crisis. The crisis manager, diplomat, commander-in-chief, and consoler-in-chief seems to be everything everywhere all at once. (laughs) Great movie, by the way. Biden's age is cited as a major reason that roughly two-thirds of Democrats polled do not want Biden as their nominee. This lack of support for Biden by Democratic voters is interesting. Dr. Julia Zari, who I mentioned earlier, who I interviewed on this show, she has pointed out that there is this inverse dynamic happening in the Republican and Democratic primaries. On the Republican side, we seem to have primary voters who are overwhelmingly supportive of Trump. Party elites, big dollar donors, on the other hand, they initially fled to DeSantis. These party leaders, such as Senator Mitch McConnell, seem to want anyone but Trump. The tail is definitely wagging the dog. One of my favorite sayings is that if the people lead, the politicians will follow. Most of them are afraid to criticize Trump. Their voter base is wagging these dogs. The poster boy for this is Senator Lindsey Graham. Despite him praising his friend Joe Biden in the past and being attacked by Trump, he is now a sycophant of Trump and the MAGA movement. On the Democratic side, party elites, donors, and the infrastructure appear solidly behind Biden. Democratic voters, however, do not seem to be on board. I mentioned the polls showing roughly two-thirds of Democratic voters wanting someone else as their nominee. But of course, these polls don't have any alternative, and there's a lot of issues with these polls that I'm not going to get into right now. Polls are not perfect. Democrats who might have a shot at defeating Biden, such as Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer or California Governor Gavin Newsom, seem unwilling to challenge an incumbent president, the leader of their party. Newsom recently declared unwavering support for the president and vice president, and he was emphatic about not running. They all seem to be keeping their popularity in check for a 2028 bid. For Democratic voters, it seems to me, who don't want four years of a Republican president and potentially a Republican House and Senate and Supreme Court, wow, one-party rule with no checks and balances? Ugh, sounds communist. For these Democratic voters, this election feels existential. 
many feel that some of these potential candidates should get in, if for no other reason than to give voters a chance and make things more democratic. In 2015, potential candidates who otherwise wanted to run, like Senators Klobuchar, Warren, Booker, Governor Newsom, and others, seemed to defer to Senator Clinton as the heir apparent. Senator Sanders gave her a run for money, and when others saw that he won Michigan, many regretted not running. Clinton turned out not to be the strongest candidate. It is true that she won the popular vote, and there was election interference, but I suspect interference would have occurred no matter who the Democratic nominee was, and everyone knows the Electoral College rules of the game before they get in. A Democrat has to spend a lot of time in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Biden did that and won. Clinton did not and lost. It's not that simple, however, but it does seem that the vast majority of Democrats want a competitive and, well, Democratic primary. Many argue that whoever emerges from a competitive primary is a stronger nominee, and there is some history to back that up. Notwithstanding Sanders nipping at her heels, had Clinton had to hone her skills in a competitive primary, she might have been a stronger nominee. Given that the Democrats moved South Carolina to the front of the primary calendar, it is very possible that Biden would emerge as the nominee even with credible challengers. Uh, by the way, I don't consider Marianne Williamson or anti-vaxxer hero of the right Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to be any threat to Biden. He has recently hinted that he will get out of the race and run as an independent. That might be good news for Democrats concerned about spoilers on the left, such as Dr. Cornell West. You know, I think were Kennedy to pull some of the anti-vaccine and COVID denier vote from the Republicans, it could possibly make a difference on the margins think Ralph Nader and Ross Perot. Spoiler alert. Rules nerds have noted that the Republican Party rules concerning delegates, the calendar, etc. all seem to favor Trump. His people now control many of the state and local Republican Party committees. Most states have moved to a winner-take-all delegate contest in these Republican primaries. They also now require candidates to earn higher percentages of the vote to claim any delegates. Those changes all benefit Trump, especially in a crowded field. The notable exception seems to be Montana. Not sure that matters much. For example, California's primary is in March instead of June, and the state is the biggest prize for the Republican nomination. The state GOP changed the rules, seemingly just for Trump, so that if any candidate gets more than 50% of the votes statewide, they will get all 169 delegates. That's a lot of delegates. It could be game over at that point. The chattering class, cable news celebrities, and yes, podcast hosts seem to weigh in on every little movement or lack thereof in the presidential race, which is a year away. Welcome to Silly Season. We welcome your feedback. Please follow the show on Twitter at PoliticsCons. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others.